0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Begolke here with John Mitchell. It's great to talk to you all this week. We're here with uh, a stacked, um, but in some ways, sadly stacked episode to talk about this week. Um... We're going to be leading off with a look back at Howard Schnellenberger, who recently passed away, uh, the iconic coach of the Miami Hurricanes in their first national championship season. In our second segment, Barry Alvarez retires, the longtime Wisconsin football coach and athletic director. After a long and storied career in Madison, his days are now over. Um, so we'll be looking back at Alvarez's legacy. In our third segment, we will be diving into Austin versus NCAA coming up in the Supreme Court actually later today. If you're listening to this podcast as it comes out on Wednesday morning, uh, the NCAA will be hearing in this landmark case that will look at compensation to college athletes. It could completely upend college football as we know it. And in our final segment, Lincoln Riley has been shooting off rate lately about uh, intra-conference transfers and his feeling that players shouldn't be able to move within a league footprint. Uh, so we have a nice big old action-packed show for you all, so we're not going to, uh, to linger too long. But I, I have to ask, John, I do every week. How are things going for you?
1: Things are going well. Um, I'm, you know, happy to be back talking football with you as much as, you know, some of the stuff isn't the best this week. Having to talk about Howard Schnellenberger, for instance, uh, passing on. But, you know, always enjoy the time being able to to sit here with you, take a break from the reality of the world and kind of get into our bubble and talk football.
0: Yeah. You know, this is always a treat and I hope it is for all of you who are out there listening as well, just a a chance to unwind or just step aside for a little bit and take a few minutes to just listen. Um, because things are crazy. I know they are for me it, it we're coming up on the final month of the term, and then I go straight into teaching summer term so life is life is crazy, and you know it's crazy on college campuses all across the country as we see spring practices get going FCS football play. And, you know, now school's having to mourn as well. Um, Howard Schnellenberger had, you know, a legacy at four different schools when he, um, in his long coaching career. Uh, but, you know, people remember him most, I think from his days at Miami and, uh, So I think that's probably the right place for us to talk to start talking this week, John, in terms of, you know, Schnellenberger's legacy and for everything that happened in Coral Gables since, you know, the first national championship and then Schnellenberger abruptly leaving um, for what he thought was a USFL gig that just never panned out, unfortunately. What do you think his lasting legacy is there with the Hurricanes? And do you think that it still holds sway 38 years at this point after he coached his last game?
1: I think absolutely because, I mean, Miami was really nothing on the national scene until Schnellenberger got there and really built that program. You know, he was only there for five seasons as the head coach. Had some had a slow start, only winning five games in year one, but then, you know, a couple nine-win seasons and ultimately the shocking 83 national title where they stunned a great Nebraska team um, in the Orange Bowl. I think one of the bigger upsets in college football championship history. Uh, I don't really think anybody expected Miami to really win that game. They entered, I think, fifth in the AP poll against number one unbeaten Nebraska led by Tom Osborne um who I mean clearly had a great team and Miami pulled a shocking upset and ended up being voted number 1 after it deservedly so um for that massive win you know back in the days when 1 versus 2 wasn't guaranteed in bowl season um as it is now and the crowning of a national champion was even more up in the air than it is now <laughs> um but I think his legacy definitely lasts I think you know for, by all accounts he was a good person Uh, I've really rarely heard anyone have a negative word to say about Schnellenberger. Um, And he was cool as hell, right? I mean, Schnellenberger lasting image standing there smoking a pipe with that iconic mustache and hair. I mean, he's fantastic. His coaching career spanned all the way back to Bear Bryant's staff um, at not just the University of Alabama, but I believe the University of Kentucky. To begin with as a, you know, a graduate assistant and ultimately a wide receivers coach before Bryant moved on to the University of Alabama, he recruited Joe Namath to Alabama. So obviously me personally, that's a fun thing. Like I wasn't alive when he did so, but obviously Joe Namath is one of the more iconic players in Alabama football history, uh, perhaps our most famous alumnus. um in terms of on the football field for what he did with the jets and in the NFL in particular. So obviously ties to back to, to bear Bryant and what a long illustrious career Schnellenberger had as, uh, as an assistant before he, you know, ultimately led Miami to a national championship, uh, before moving on to the, you know, failed USFL attempt. Um, It's interesting to think, it's an interesting thought exercise to think about what he could have done at Miami had he stayed and not chased after the pro football dream. Um, You know, would we really be looking at him like we looked at Jimmy Johnson? Would he ultimately had that kind of success with the Canes? And I think probably yes, uh, just based on what he was able to do there. So. You know, obviously, it's a it's a big loss for college football. Your heart goes out to his family, friends, everybody who really knew him. Obviously, Zach and I didn't know him personally, uh, but obviously, we always enjoyed Howard Schnellenberger the personality. And I think it's a big loss for the college football world.
0: Yeah, unbelievably so. And you're right to mention, you know, that long career before he even gets to Miami. I mean. In the city, he is revered even before that as the offensive coordinator of that 1972 undefeated Dolphins team, you know, so uh, he has that on his resume as well. Uh, and, you know, had his hand as a head coach at, you know, in Baltimore Uh Unfortunately, that only panned out a couple of seasons. He comes back to Miami as an offensive coordinator for another four years and just, you know, unbelievable legacy all across the board. Um, But I I think as much as thinking about his time uh, with the Hurricanes, which, you know, it's sad to think about it being abbreviated and it's interesting to think about what happens if Tom Osborne kicks the extra point to go for a tie rather than going for two in the win there in the Orange Bowl. Because that, you know, Miami doesn't win the national championship if that happens. Does Schnellenberger, you know, he said his goal was to win a national championship at Miami. Does he stick around another couple of years? Maybe the whole trajectory changes. But, you know, he goes back to his hometown, you know, and. Louisville, he you know he helps out the Cardinals and takes them to a ten win season, um, their first ever New Year's Day Bowl game where you know, uh, sad for you they they kicked Alabama's ass thirty four seven in that Fiesta Bowl, but you know I I mean really showed himself to be a program builder at multiple places and you know maybe. I, I guess Oklahoma fans might have a beef with him after that five, five and one season and, and leaving Dodge right after that. But, you know, I, I, I think his legacy in South Florida at the very least is it, it, it's hard to see another coach that that's had that much of a lasting legacy at both the pro and the college level, because I mean, he built, florida atlantic from scratch that football team doesn't necessarily exist without howard schnellenberger we don't have the the boca raton bowl without howard schnellenberger necessarily with you know that stadium getting built there so legacy all across the board Um, uh, you know a guy who ends up You know, you look at his career record, it's only 158, 151 and three, just barely above 500. But I think his lasting impact goes beyond the wins and losses that get marked on his final record because, you know, as you said, he was, he's an icon.
1: Yeah. And I mean, what people don't understand when they look at it too, Zach, is that Miami wasn't a desirable job when Howard Schnellenberger took over the Hurricanes program. We're talking about a football program that was literally on its last legs. For anybody who's watched the U documentary that ESPN's Thirty for Thirty did, which if you haven't seen, really after you finish listening to every bit of this podcast, um, you should immediately look see, seek that out and watch it because it's one of their best pieces of work they did in that really fantastic Thirty for Thirty series. Uh, that ESPN ran. Um, But I mean, this is a program that was talking about dropping the sport altogether before Snellenberger got there and he gets there and saves the program. So without him being there and having that success, we don't get all those fun Miami teams in the late eighties, early nineties, and even into the two thousands, we don't get all of those teams because there's a chance that that program doesn't survive. And even if they do survive, it's probably not the iteration of Miami that we ended up seeing. Um, so, I mean, that wasn't at all a desirable spot. Um, I mean, he started a program from scratch at Florida Atlantic, uh, a program that's become one of the top group of five programs in recent years. And, I mean, he took that program from the very bottom, the very beginning to where they are now, led them through, you know, Division One AA at the time. And then advancing into the you know the Division One A ranks, which is now FBS football. So, I mean, just an amazing legacy when you think about the guys starting playing for Bear Bryant at Kentucky, recruiting Joe Namath to Alabama, winning a national title as Alabama's offensive coordinator, being the national I mean the offensive coordinator on the Super Bowl winning undefeated nineteen seventy two Dolphins, winning a national title, and really birthing the beginning of modern Miami football, where you're talking about one of the best stretches any program's ever had in the history of the sport, and then really building from scratch a program at Florida Atlantic. I mean, just an incredible resume, a true titan of the sport. His win-loss record certainly does not speak to the impact he had on the game.
0: Undoubtedly. I, 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 I really don't have any more I can say in praise of the guy. And, uh, you know, he hasn't been coaching for the past decade. But I think his shadow still kind of lingers over the sport. And it, especially last season, not this one that just finished, but the one before that, the 150th season, um, you know, I think he did loom large at that time. And so it it's always sad to see a renowned coach, pass away, um, and I've had to write obituaries about several of them over the years, uh, but Schnellenberger is one that that just touched a lot of lives across a lot of decades in the sport, so um, a lot of sorrow, but, you know, again, he brought a lot of joy, so I don't think we should, we should linger on that. So you linger on that while we go to our first break. Uh, And when we come back, we'll be looking at another legend who's, you know, hanging up his hat, but luckily still with us on this earth. We'll be back to talk with you all in a second. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just uh, gave our our eulogy to Howard Schnellenberger, if you will. Um, while it is not official, um, all signs point to the fact that Barry Alvarez is going to be stepping down as the athletic director at the University of Wisconsin. What the fuck did you do to yourself?
1: I. Uh was messing with a beer cap and cut my finger a little bit.
0: Nice.
1: So anyway. <laughs> so yeah,
0: you know, Barry Alvarez has been in Wisconsin for damn near my entire life. I mean, he took over as the head coach in 1990, and uh, I was seven years old at the start of that season, I guess eight, when he finished that one in 10 campaign. And, uh, you know, that was a time when head coaches got the chance to actually build up a program and, and by his fourth season there, um, you know, kind of a similar trajectory to Schnellenberger taking it kind of from the dregs up. Uh, he had that ten one in one season in 93 where the Badgers went to their first Rose bowl since, I think it was 1962. I think it was that classic against USC was the last time they had been there before. Uh, so you know, I the three-decade drought that he 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 ends there. He he's royalty in Madison forever if he steps down then after season four, kind of like Schellenberger. Um, but then he sticks around and you know takes them to back-to-back Rose Bowls. In 98 and 99, uh, finish in the top five both times and never really hit those heights again as a coach. Uh, you know, his last season he steps down after a 10 and three campaign where they reached the top 15. But even then, you know, I think the fact that he takes them to those three Rose Bowls, wins three conference titles in Madison um, and then stays on, you know, as the athletic and then stays on as the athletic director for you know another. I mean, he steps down in 05, so it's another 15 years or so, if indeed, you know, the news that's coming out is is true. This is obviously a bit personal for me. This is a large part of my life. So I, I'm going to ask you first, John, you know, what are your thoughts as, as more of a neutral observer? You know, what did, what did Alvarez mean, you know, to Wisconsin, to the Big Ten, to college football in general from a neutral perspective
1: well since i'm much younger than you zach and i mean much much younger than you zach i can't even remember a time when uh wisconsin football didn't have barry alvarez's fingerprints on it because i think anyone who understands and knows anything about wisconsin football knows that when barry alvarez retired from coaching in 2005 he was still extremely involved with the badgers obviously being their athletic director but very still involved, hands-on with the athletic department uh, or with the football program in particular. I mean, came back and coached two bowl games in 2012 and 2014. I'm kind of sad that we're not going to get to see that randomly again. Whenever you know, Paul Christ decides, or Paul Christ decides to to step away from the Badgers and have Alvarez come back, even if he's like 86, he should still come back and coach whatever bowl game that is. But I think you know, I don't know a lot about. Wisconsin football pre-Alvarez because it's just not been in my scope, but I know that he really is Wisconsin football from what I can see and understand. Like in, in, in my lifetime, at least he's been the guy, he's been the figurehead for the program. And it's felt like no matter who they hired as a coach during this, this span, since he retired, that Badger football was going to be Badger football, that culture that Alvarez created there um, that, you know, tough, gritty, big offensive lineman, great running game, that culture sustained through Alvarez's retirement with Brett Bielema taking over um, and on now to the current coaching staff. And I mean, Gary Anderson even had success uh, despite all his weird quirks and stuff that have come up in, in the aftermath of his tenure in Madison. So, I mean, I, I, I know that culture that he's built there. It's going to be tough to sustain, I think, without him being hands-on. But knowing what I know about Barry Alvarez, he might be retiring. But he's probably still going to be at every Badger home football game. Um, he's probably still going to have some input whenever, you know, anything major comes up with the program. But, I mean, I think he's got a great legacy. I mean, he was 3-0 and in Rose Bowls, too. And you mentioned going to those three Rose Bowls. When he was the, the actual head coach, not the interim coach, he was 3-0 and in those Rose Bowl games. So, I mean, they Wisconsin going to the Rose Bowl with Alvarez was an automatic dub. And, I mean, winning the Rose Bowl has always really been thought as the best consolation if you couldn't play for the national championship. It was to go to the Rose Bowl, you know, play in that game, and if you could win that game, then you won the most prestigious bowl game outside of the national championship. So being able to win that three different times is just incredibly impressive uh, for him there. And I'll be really interested to see if Wisconsin's able to maintain that culture that, I mean, is 100% Alvarez built, and if they're able to sustain that with him stepping away.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: it, it is kind of unbelievable
0: to think just how far he took the program. Uh, You know, Dave McClain in the late 70s and early 80s had, you know, a 500 record. He ends up uh, taking the Badgers to three bowl games in his, what was it, I think, eight seasons there. Um, So not horrible, but he never wins more than seven games. You know, the last coach to really have an impressive span in Madison was Milt Brun, who was the last coach to take them to the Rose Bowl so I I mean Wisconsin isn't the Wisconsin we know without Alvarez he kind of installs that that blueprint of getting just the you know just beefiest offensive linemen you can possibly get um and just training up the hell out of them. I mean, so many of these offensive linemen go on to not just get drafted into the NFL, but have solid NFL careers, you know, really productive NFL careers for, um, you know, long spans, um, just really useful at a range of positions. And then you know goes out and finds a fleet back usually heads to new jersey and goes and and finds some garden state you know tailback and puts them behind this line and says run for daylight you know it's very much a. it's a blueprint that would you know melt vince lombardi's heart was you know if he had been watching from green bay it's exactly what it is and I think that's why the Badgers continued to be so successful even after he left, you know, um, Barry Alvarez has 50 more wins than the next closest coach in Badgers history. He, he, he retired with 118 wins, uh, 118, and four. Um, Brett Bielema is next on that list right after him, 68 and 24. And a big reason that that's a case is because Barry Alvarez set up everything perfectly for a first time head coach to come in and knock it out of the park. You know, Bielema doesn't have three conference championships during that span. I don't think if he doesn't have the blueprint for success that Alvarez has there. And, you know, um, after what we've seen with Gary Anderson, I don't think he's nearly as successful if that blueprint isn't in place. And no, look
1: what happened to Gary Anderson and Bielema when they left.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Paul Christ, you know, as a Wisconsin guy, as an alumnus of the school, a guy who, you know, obviously wants to be there in Madison. I'd be shocked if he ever left, um, You know, he played there right before Alvarez came came to town, but he's a Wisconsin guy. He was born in Madison. You know, he was the hometown guy getting to play quarterback for the Badgers, even if he did it at a time when they weren't quite successful. You know, I think if indeed we've seen the last of Barry Alvarez in an official capacity as the athletic director in Madison, or if we're soon to see that happen... You know, his blueprint's going to last on this football program for a long, long time. You know, as long as Paul Crist is there at the very least. And unless they substantively decide to go in a different route when Paul Crist is done in Madison, you know, the Alvarez legacy is going to carry on for decades to come. I, I, I would be shocked to see them kind of give up what's really made them work so well
1: so yeah yeah a really interesting point at the beginning too zach because alvarez was 11 and 22 in his first three seasons at wisconsin how many coaches have we seen get canned because of three season even maybe a two season run like that um in recent seasons? so it's it's amazing what can happen when fans and athletic departments are patient, because it would have been the biggest mistake in Wisconsin football history if they let Barry Alvarez go after those three seasons. And it makes you wonder if other programs have made catastrophic mistakes that we'll never really know about for sure because they pulled the trigger too quickly. And I have one more point that's very, very interesting that you'll enjoy, and you probably know this, but the people listening do not, Do you know who Barry Alvarez beat in his last college football game that he coached?
0: That he coached?
1: That he coached. His retirement.
0: You mean, are, are we talking about his 2005 retirement, or are we talking about the last game he coached?
1: Correct. The last game he coached in 2012. No. No. No,
0: it would be 2014.
1: 2014, excuse me.
0: Yeah, we're talking about Gus Malzahn.
1: Yes, exactly. He beat Auburn. I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm petty and I think it's hilarious. So, yes, in the Outback Bowl in 2014, he defeated Gus Malzahn. I don't know why I thought 2012. I think Auburn won literally three games in 2012. That's the only Iron Bowl I ever got to go to in my life. And Alabama won like 49-0. to So you think I would have remembered that, but, you know, beer and stuff. No, fair
0: enough. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the last Rose Bowl he coached was the one that he lost against David Shaw 2014. And, you know, that was a close game. That was the last year of the – or no, the penultimate year of the bowl championship series. Cause that was the year that Northern Illinois made it with their loss. And it was specifically because Wisconsin won the big 10 as the representative from the leaders, legends, one of the two, um, because both Ohio state and Penn state were on probation at the time.
1: Interesting. They were like eight and four or something, right? Like they only won eight games, I think getting in there.
0: Yeah. They were in
1: Illinois. Shout out Jordan Lynch. I haven't thought about that guy in a long time. He brought a lot of joy to us college football fans. I know.
0: And, you know, um, I guess technically Brett Bielema let that happen, but you know, because he was coaching the championship, the big 10 championship, and then bolted for Arkansas before the Rose bowl. Um, but yeah, you know, Alvarez's footprint is all over that. So way to go. Thank you for giving us Jordan Lynch. Thank you for giving us a BCS buster that didn't have to be perfect. Um, thank you in so many ways, Barry. You know, it was a treat to, I mean, basically my fanhood of Wisconsin football. I mean, it starts, you know, I, I think I really become a cognizant fan of any sports in you know the late 80s so other than those you know last few years before Alvarez comes to town that's pretty much all I know is him in in Madison so awesome thank you for the memories and uh you know Barry if we tip this off ahead of time and you actually listen to our podcast um I hope we didn't get the news wrong And, you know, if that's true, we look forward to seeing you for many years to come and you can just uh, rewind and replay this whenever you actually do retire. So on that note, uh, we're going to take another break quickly and we're going to get to some more current events soon as we turn to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We're here in our third segment to talk to you about the U.S. Supreme Court. They've had a large influence on college football in the past, dating back to their, uh, you know, I think the biggest one is probably the 1984 decision in uh, NCAA versus Oklahoma. Um, Or maybe I have that backward. Anyway, you know, the whole, Breaking the NCAA's monopoly powers over television rights, and and I mean obviously the sport we're talking about now is a huge part of that. But you know the NCAA uh, is back in court because we have Alston versus NCAA, which is you know could really shape college football moving down the line in terms of how much athletes are compensated. and whether or not this is a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. A lot of things wrapped up in this case, John. Um, Do you think, you know, I mean, given what the Supreme Court has done in terms of, you know, both hurting and helping the NCAA in the past, do you think that they are more likely to side with, you know, the NCAA in this case, or with Alston, you know, Sean Alston, who's, you know, kind of the lead on this case is the former West Virginia football
1: player. You know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that popular demand is leaning more towards the athlete in these cases in recent years. I think we're really about to see, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, a pretty seismic shift, In college football, as it pertains to NILs, as it pertains to transfer rules, um, and all kinds of compensation-related aspects of the sport that have been an issue for a long time, I don't know that I have a ton of faith in our current Supreme Court to to do what's right in this case uh, without digging too deep or picking too hard at that scab. But um, I do think that it's coming. I do think that there's going to be some. Significant changes on that front in the future and on several fronts as it pertains to college football. I think the sport is going to look drastically different and is going to be, and it's not just college football, obviously. This is NCAA. It's going to impact athletes in every sport, but I think it's coming. I think athletes we've talked about a lot in the past too are certainly starting to realize the power that they wield uh, over the sport. We saw in the NCAA tournament a a um, lot of players coming together and wearing warmups that said not NCAA property. For instance, um, I know Javon Quinterly for Alabama was one of those guys who was doing that really brought to my attention, a guy who really didn't simply screwed over by not letting play last year. He had to sit out as a transfer um, from Villanova, lost a year of eligibility, lost a year of his ability to make an impact and potentially you know, make waves to be able to play professionally and make money, uh, playing a game he's very, very good at. So, um, that was great to see. That was another, you know, uh, thing of athletes kind of coming together and realizing their worth and power and stuff. And I think we're only going to keep seeing that. Zach.
0: Undoubtedly. And I'm really excited to see that happening. Um, honestly, I'd love to see more of it. I'd love to see, you know, uh, Final four sit-down strike, maybe. That would be awesome, Uh you know. But, you know, thinking about this case specifically, it's fascinating because it all comes down to that antitrust, you know, issue with college football. It's exactly what 1984 came down to with, with NCAA versus Oklahoma. And... You know, it hinges on does the NCAA and do member schools, you know, in this case, it really comes down to when those member schools agree as a unit to limit what they're able to provide to college students or to college athletes specifically, um, is this an unfair restraint on the ability to cash in on their value? And, you know, this all stems, the whole reason this is in the Supreme Court now is a judge in California, Claudia Wilkin, um, ruled on, this was God, two years ago now, um, basically that the NCAA should have no issue maintaining appeal Um as long And there's no issue with amateurism as long as all the benefits that athletes receive are tethered to education, were the words in the case. Um, so basically the idea is there's no limit on the education-related benefits that a school can give. Um, you know, do you need new laptops every year? Great. Do you want to be in band? Ha- have an instrument? Do you want to... You know, can they set aside stuff for study abroad programs? Can they set aside um, continuing education funds, you know, lifetime scholarships? Um, Can you even pay players a certain stipend for getting a a certain GPA? Um, This basically says if it's tied to education benefits in some way, Schools should be allowed to pay that. There should be no restraint on what an athlete can negotiate going into it. Um obviously the NCAA hates that. You know, this goes well beyond name, image, and likeness because this is hitting at the core of what schools can actually give. And, you know, um, I just think about Penn State where I'm at now or Oregon, where I was at before this, you know, on those two campuses, you know, in grad programs, having taught athletes in the past, you know, could an athlete certainly stand to, you know, benefit from getting a new laptop every year? Certainly. I, you know, the way I beat the hell out of my laptops, I could certainly stand to have faster technology especially in the age of Zoom classes, you know, I, I think that's the other thing we need to think about is these sorts of benefits, you know, um, paying for somebody's wireless in their apartment or, or you know, their housing um, so that they have a safe place to take remote classes if that's the way they're going. That could be tied to education. Um, I'm honestly for players getting the more the most that they can out of this system. Um I don't think anybody that's listened to this podcast over the 90 odd episodes we've done would could probably find anything I've said that counters that trend. Um but honestly if you want to go back and listen to all 90 some episodes I am all for it, and I would love for somebody to go do that and, you know, find the clip and prove me wrong. Hit me up on Twitter at Z if you do, Um, and you know, I will give you all the kudos for listening to that much audio because we've got hours and hours of footage in the archive. Um, But you know, that's what the fact that the the Supreme Court is listening to this case at all kind of blows my mind um, because we're seeing. Ultimately, uh, you know, a spate of state legislation and even talk of federal legislation um, that gives college athletes greater rights in the marketplace. So, you know, but I think the Supreme Court ruling on this and the way they've ruled in past antitrust cases with the NCAA, this could be really interesting to see what happens because. Um you know in some ways i think people are you know this I, I i understand why people are afraid this idea that the rich become richer or you know whatever that story is but ultimately john knows you know what college football royalty looks like he he's been basking in that glory for the past decade now at this point, Um, you know, when Nick Saban rides into the sunset, Alabama is still going to be set up financially as one of the premier programs in the country. Those those programs haven't changed over the decades. You know, Texas is always going to be able to pull in 10 gallon size hats worth of, of lucre. And Ohio State is always going to be a wash in cash. And um, pretty much any SEC program is going to be able to buy out whatever ridiculous settlement amount they've put on, whatever coach they've hired, whenever the hell they want to do it. Um, And that's true of pretty much any Power Five conference at this point. So... Money already talks in college football. All this does is this lets the players get some of it. And you know, if schools want to, you know, offer this to players more power to them, because you know, um, they'll also have to decide do they want to make the investment in the same number of coaches, you know, and assistants and assistance to the assistants and lackeys and um special assistants and these, you know, what is it? Uh special consultants to the head coach and all of the other, you know, largesse that is developed around coaching staffs. Teams will have to decide if they want to still continue paying that. And honestly, if that money's distributed more equitably across a hundred 10, 120 players, because you know, I think you include everybody on that squad scholarship or otherwise. Especially if you're not making a scholarship, you sure as hell ought to get something out of this bargain for getting your brains bashed out from week to week. Um I, I I'm with you. I don't have confidence that the Supreme Court is necessarily as currently constructed going to side in favor of labor, if you will, over management, because that's really what this comes down to. Do you side with labor over management across the industry that has colluded on setting um, maximum wages? That's exactly what this case fundamentally comes down to. So does Sherman apply in this? I, I tend to think that it does. I don't think the Supreme Court would touch this if they don't think that this has a, a chance of possibly, you know, carrying weight. But whatever it is, you know, I I this, even if it does go through and, you know, the ruling from, from Wilkin is ruled as, you know, law, and the NCAA can't put these restrictions on, um, it doesn't yet change NIL rights. That's separate legislation that needs to happen. Players still have a long way to go in terms of the fight for security. But this, at the very least, lets them negotiate. If they decide to go early to the pros, they can always come back and finish their studies, you know? If they wanted to, they can negotiate to have lifetime scholarships so that if they want to stay there for graduate studies, they can continue on. Because hell, at that point, they're ambassadors to the school, you know? Um, and you can bargain stipulations this way or that way around it, you know? They can bargain for health insurance, which is a requirement on college campuses at this point. They can... You know, they can bargain to have study abroad opportunities. They can bargain to have um you know, longer spans for study. There's so many things that can happen there. Make it happen. I really hope. Come on, SCOTUS, make it happen.
1: Yeah, no, I mean total agreement. I mean I think I think longtime listeners of the podcast know where we land on the NCAA versus the players standpoint. And we've always sided with the players. Um, you know, I, there's been a lot of injustice across not just college football, but all of college athletics for a long time where the NCAA just proves time and time again, they don't really care about the athletes. I mean, we saw it with the women's NCAA tournament, um, a a week or two ago, or whatever it was at this point, um, with the ridiculous facilities they were given in comparison to the men's tournament. Um, and then how quickly the, the NCAA was able to change that, basically overnight once photos and, you know, everybody started commenting and seeing just how terrible the conditions were. How quickly they were able to right that wrong, which meant it was always in their power to do so,
0: and, and even they, uh, and, and even when they did do it, that was still not an equitable weight room. No. They they put up a bunch of fucking taffeta and it was better and, and, and you know stringer lights and and they 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 made it prettier. You know, they brought in some more equipment, but I mean, it's
1: an improvement, but the gym at my apartment complex is still, would have still been better. Yeah. Gym that they provided them at the women's NCAA tournament.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's on top of food, that's on top of giving them different COVID tests, um, you know, giving them, you know, ones that have been proven to have more false positives and false negatives. Um, That's on top of, you know, I mean, horribly different swag bags. You know, I mean, everything across the board is basically just saying, you know, the NCAA argues that allowing name, image and likeness rights or allowing schools to give athletes more um, would be damaging for women's sports. But frankly, the NCAA has been damaging for women's sports. You know, the fact is eight out of the top ten basketball players in terms of social media presence in the NCAA tournament this year are women's players. They would have vastly more earning potential at the college level in terms of negotiating for um some kind of benefits out of their name, image, and likeness rights. Women, by and large, want these opportunities just as much as men do. And in terms of the Alston case, you know, this doesn't just help college football. This allows all athletes to begin negotiating for benefits across the board that are education related. Um, and of course, I feel that they should be able to negotiate for you know an actual damn paycheck but until then the fact that they could negotiate grade-based rewards the fact that they could negotiate like actual cash money for grades um the fact that they could negotiate you know funding for a wide range of you know material needs that's huge so do it supreme court uh Hopefully you listen to this podcast right before you go into deliberations, before you go into chambers. Um and hear this case. So all of you sitting, make it happen. Um and on that note, let's take another last quick break before we get into Lincoln Riley, because boy, do we have some words for Lincoln Riley. So uh stay tuned. Get yourself a drink. Uh relieve yourself, let the dog out, do whatever it is you need to do because you're going to want to be able to sit in your seat for this one. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've had a lot to talk about, but one last story we want to get into this week before we sign off is a uh, recent talk from Lincoln Riley about the interconference transfer rule. What is this exactly, you ask? Uh, well, should college football allow players to transfer within the conference that they originally signed in? You know, I think Lincoln Riley himself would be kind of hurting if this wasn't a thing that was allowed. Um, but setting that aside, um, you know, just kind of the hypocrisy of it all from a guy like this, uh, who's had a lot of success with transfers both inside and outside the Big Twelve. What do you think generally, John? Do you think there's any merit at all behind not allowing people to transfer within their conference? Why well, What? Why would anybody want this?
1: No, absolutely not. And, I mean, we this is a relic of the past. It's one of those things that's clearly dying, and you still have coaches clinging to the last remnants of that. I mean, the ACC has already come up come forward and said they're completely removing that restriction from its rule book. So, I mean, that's the first domino. But every conference is ultimately going to do it. Every time a coach restricts transfers, here's how it goes. They get unbelievably bad press. Everybody hates them for it. And you know what ultimately happens, Zach? They ultimately release the player. So, just release them. Save yourself the bad press. Save yourself having to listen to media members just trash you for weeks on end, get out ahead of it. And, I mean, like you said in the lead-in, Lincoln Raleigh certainly had no problem taking Baker Mayfield from Texas Tech and then, you know, having a Heisman Trophy-winning quarterback who was at another Big 12 school before coming there and then leading them to the playoff two different times. He had no issue with that. And how different do we look at Lincoln Riley if he doesn't begin his Oklahoma head coaching career with Baker Mayfield at quarterback? Like, who's the quarterback of those first two OU teams? Probably somebody pretty solid, not somebody as good as Baker Mayfield, who was ultimately a number one overall pick in the draft. We know that for a fact. So it's just ridiculous. And I think it's damaging to the sport when you have a guy like Lincoln Riley, who's not even a member of the old guard. If you had a coach like Matt Brown or a Nick Saban or whoever who was restricting a transfer, you could at least rationalize it because those coaches cut their teeth in like the 70s and 80s when stuff like this, when everything was a lot more conservative in the sport. Lincoln Riley is one of the like new age college football coaches that you would expect to be fully on board with all of the uh, the changes, all the progressive changes coming to college football. You'd think he would be ahead of the pack, leading the way, and instead he's deciding that he wants to join in with the old heads and, and try to restrict players from being able to transfer schools. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it's, it's particularly damaging to see a young – it's particularly sad and unfortunate to see a young coach like Lincoln Riley take this stance. Um It really is just disappointing.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point to bring up. We hope that generationally coaches become more enlightened toward the needs of their players. And I think if you look at the general flow of college football history, that has been true, you know. We don't hear stories about, you know, coaches, you know, Bear Bryant's Junction voice don't ha- doesn't happen anymore, just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but at the same time, coaches st- still you know rule the power dynamic here, and coaches by and large are willing to look more enlightened when it comes to, um. Supporting players off the field, you know, we've seen a lot of these players come out and support players, especially this last summer when we saw um, Black Lives Matter protests, when we saw this general push toward greater social justice in our society, and players taking a stand toward that. Um, Coaches, by and large, are becoming more supportive in that way. But when it comes to anything that could actively harm their power within the program, coaches aren't a player's friend. No, it's management and labor, just like we talked about in the last segment. Um ultimately, I, I mean, you and I have both managed and been on the other end of that equation, you know. Um, obviously, you know. Certain levels of management are are more labor than management in a lot of ways, um, but coaches are the CEO. You know, I I mean, we've both been in situations where we had to deal with managers above us, you know, who who kind of dictate the swarm of things, um, and we've also been in situations where we had to manage those underneath us, and um, being attentive to those power dynamics is incredibly critical no matter which side of the equation you're on and coaches don't want to give up any power when it actively when it is active power within the program and I think that's why we see somebody like Riley who's by and large seen as one of these hip new generation of coaches taking such an archaic stance
1: Yeah, I mean, if I was Lincoln Riley, I would concern myself with more of how not to get my ass kicked in every college football playoff, but that's just me. Well,
0: you know, I mean, obviously, he's paid to think about what happens on the field, but let's think about this a couple of ways. So, by and large, conferences recruit within their conference footprint. Schools, you know, conferences talk about getting a new school specifically because at at this point, it's not media markets. It's it's, does this expand our recruiting footprint? You know, the SEC goes, brings in Texas A&M, because now you can recruit more Texas players to the SEC as a whole. Um, You know, conferences talk about bringing in these sorts of, you know, teams from these sorts of states all the time. (laughs) So when you coach At a place like Oklahoma, with a high concentration of Texas players um, and multiple Texas schools within your league footprint, say one of these guys' parents gets sick. We've seen this happen before with players where coaches actively restricted their ability to transfer to another school in conference, despite the fact that they're moving for medical hardships within their family. You know, coaches should never have power over freedom of movement. Whatever restrictions get put on by schools, and frankly, I think any transfer rule is, for lack of a better word, shall I say, fucking stupid. Um it, you know, if you're going to put any restrictions on it, sure as hell ought not be determined by coaches. And frankly, it ought not even be determined on a conference-to-conference basis. You make this flat across the board, and the best thing you can do is just make it open across the board. A coach can bounce schools every damn year if he wants to. I mean, we saw Todd Graham try that for a while. (laughs) So, you know, if a player actively wants to use their four years of playing eligibility at four different schools, if they want to see the experience of playing in the Big Ten and the SEC and the Pac-12 and the ACC, let them do it. If they want a year to see what playing at the FCS with a school like North Dakota State is like, if they're good enough to play in all these different leagues, let them friggin' do it. Why not? Who the hell does this hurt? The only person it might hurt is the coach who loses a little bit of his power over the labor under his control.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it, honestly, the coach is so concerned about players going into conference. They're worried about, I guess, state secrets getting out and, and other teams are going to be playing, having an unfair advantage. But like, if you're a good coach, who cares? Like you should be able to adjust and do that. Every SEC program over the last decade has pretty much tried to steal Nick Saban's formula at Alabama. Has either hired his assist an assistant coach of his to be the head coach, or gotten players to transfer there that were at Alabama first, or whatever, and it hasn't worked because Nick Saban's a great football coach and can make adjustments. It's adapt or die in college football, and if you really think that one of your players transferring to a rival school is going to be the downfall of your program, then you have many worse problems than you're willing to let on.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's think about this. If this player wasn't a fit for your program, first of all, it's not like you let these guys walk off with playbooks and everything when they leave a program. that doesn't happen. Um, and frankly, your playbook's going to change the next year anyway. You know you're you're so paranoid about this sort of stuff happening that you're going to change language, you're going to change this, that, and the other thing. Um, so, so one, what the hell are you getting that scared about? And second of all, if the player wasn't good enough to get significant playing time in your program, do you really think they know your playbook well enough to go take that to another school? I mean, be more worried about your assistants transferring jobs intra conference, you know? Like, if you want to put restrictions about really being worried about this, there's a restriction about assistant coaches being able to take jobs at another conference school.
1: Yeah, this isn't Coach Red Boyu taking Coach Klein's little green book to his new program and stealing all the secrets that's not what's going to happen that was fictional it's just a movie
0: yeah and you know no playbook le- you know is that successful for i mean what was it decades at that point yep yeah no i mean it nick saban's playbook from 20 20- 12 looked nothing like his playbook from 2016, looked nothing like the playbook from the last season we just saw.
1: Yeah, cuz it wouldn't work. Nothing from 2012 would work in today's college football. You would go 3 and 8, 3 and 9. Yeah,
0: so what the hell are you scared about, Lincoln? What are you really scared about? I mean, what is the logic here? What do you think absolutely hurts about this? Um if you're recruiting guys within this footprint anyway, they're probably going to want to play in the same footprint again because that's where they were. Like They chose to come to this part of the country for a reason. Right. They shouldn't be forced to go to another part of the country just because you don't want to have the risk of playing them again. I mean...
1: Or if drop they, down a level and have to go, you know, no offense to the group of five, but drop down a platform have to go to a a group of five or even an FCS school just because of that, because they want to stay in the same footprint of the country.
0: Exactly. So to hell with the archaic mentalities of the Lincoln Rileys of the world. And I'd say if there was any justice, Lincoln Rileys generation would be the last generation of coaches that thinks this way. But that's going to have to be up to somebody other than the coaches. Because if it's ever up to the coaches, they're not giving up any of this power. That's not how college football works, everybody. You know this. I know this. We've watched this sport long enough. So any final words you want to throw out there, John? Because I, I, I'm i done with Lincoln Riley.
1: Yeah, I wish his um, his visor would transfer off of his head. That's about it. <laughs>
0: Well said. Well said. Um, Yeah, go find a new coach, man. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Always a pleasure being with y'all. Hit us up on Twitter, JLMitchell93, at Zbegalki. Either one works. You can tag both of us if you feel so inclined. But uh, we'll be here with you again next Wednesday and every Wednesday morning that we possibly can for the Saturday Blitz podcast.